You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. The sixth lecture in the Course on Logic for the International Catholic University I've entitled The Kinds of Statements and Relations of Opposition Between Them. Now in our last lecture we were introduced to the logic of the second operation. We noticed that since the second operation is that by which we understand the true and the false, and truth and falsity always require some sort of combination or separation, then the second operation takes place through combination and separation. In fact, primarily through combination. The words which signify that operation then signify some kind of separation or combination. We call those words the statement. We define the statement as a complex expression, which is true or false, and we said that it had two parts, the noun and the verb. The noun is the subject of the statement. The verb is the predicate. The noun signifies without time. The verb signifies with time. In this lecture, we're going to look at the kinds of statements. What we mean by different kinds of statements is not statements with different parts, with different nouns or verbs, but rather statements which are formed in different ways even if they have the same noun and verb. For example, the statements, all men are mortal and no men are mortal, have the same noun and verb, man and mortal, but they are different kinds of statements. So after we've talked about the kinds of statements, we're going to look at the oppositions that happen between the different kinds of statements. And since statements are concerned with truth and falsity, the opposition between statements is also going to be concerned with their relative truth and falsity. Now, before we actually get into our main two topics, I'd like to issue a warning about the word statement. I've been using the word statement, but there are two other words that are often used in logic and philosophy books basically in the same way. The first one is the Latin based word enunciation. Now enunciation means the same thing in Latin that statement means in English. It means something that has been stated. Unfortunately, the English word enunciation usually has a more specific meaning. To say what you say very precisely, to articulate your words well. And so consequently, it's not a very good word to use compared to the plain English word statement. Now, the other alternative is the word proposition. But the word proposition has, in fact, a different meaning when we're using it in a strictly logical way. Proposition will refer to a statement insofar as it's part of an argument. And since Aristotle and St. Thomas use the word proposition in this very specific way, 
And even though other philosophers and other logicians use this word proposition in a loose way that makes it equivalent to statement, we're going to use the word statement instead and stick with using the word proposition in its more precise meaning. The first distinction that Aristotle makes between kinds of propositions is between simple propositions and complex propositions. Now, simple propositions are propositions that have one noun and one verb that are combined. A complex proposition either puts together many simple propositions or puts together a noun with more than one verb or a verb with more than one noun. But since in all of those cases of complex propositions or statements, I guess I should use the word statement consistently, and all those examples of complex statements, they can be reduced, resolved back into simple statements. So we're going to leave aside the complex statement and focus in on the simple statement. Now, a simple statement can join a noun and a verb in such a way that it points to the things that the noun and the verb signify as being joined in reality. And such a statement is called an affirmation or an affirmative statement. For example, the statement, Socrates is tan, points to Socrates and points to tanness and says that the two are joined in reality. The denial also joins a noun and a verb, otherwise it wouldn't be a statement, but it joins them in such a way that it signifies a separation between what the noun and the verb signify in reality. For example, the statement, Socrates is not tan, joins Socrates and tanness using the word not in such a way that it points to the two things and says they are not joined in reality. A joining in words that indicates a joining in reality is called an affirmation, but a joining in words which signifies a separation in reality is called a denial or a negative statement. Thus, we can divide statements first of all into two kinds. Some statements are affirmations, some statements are denials. Aristotle's second division of statements is into the universal and the particular. Now, to understand this division, we should see how Aristotle and St. Thomas talk about universal terms as if they were wholes or parts related to a whole. Aristotle and St. Thomas call the statement, some men are mortal, particular, because they're comparing the relation between the universals and the particulars to the relation between the whole and the part in physical, quantified things. Now, the universal is a word that can be predicated of many. For example, a species is a universal because it's predicated of many individuals. The genus is universal because it's predicated of many species. But the question is, which is more universal? The answer, what is predicated of more? The genus is more universal than its species 
because it's predicated of everything the species is predicated of, plus more. So, for example, animal is predicated of everything that man is predicated of, plus more. Plus, it's also predicated of what the beasts are predicated of. So we could say this, the universal term is more than, greater than, the less universal term. And so we can see the likeness between the relation of whole and part. In physical things, quantified physical things, the whole is always greater than the part. The part is less than the whole. In predication, the universal is more predicated of more than the particular is predicated of. So the universal is called a whole, and the particular or less universal is said to be part of that whole. So universal is called a whole, particular a part, because there's a likeness that they have to a physical whole and part. But although there is a likeness, there is also a difference. And so, the word whole is used analogously when I use it of physical wholes and of universals, or as St. Thomas sometimes puts it, predicable wholes. That is, when I say animal is a whole in relation to the part man, I'm using the whole in a related but different sense than when I say the whole number four is greater than part of the number two. So far, I've only pointed out the likeness, so you're asking yourself, what is the difference? Aristotle's answer is that the most obvious difference between the two meanings is that the quantitative whole is never predicated of its parts whereas the universal whole is always predicated of its parts. For example, I would never say that two is four. I'd say two is part of four, but I'd never say two is four. But I will say that man is an animal. Animal is a predicable whole with respect to man. Four is a quantitative whole with respect to two. The quantitative whole is never predicated of its parts. The predicable whole is always predicated of its parts. Now, we can use that then to see what Aristotle means when he talks about statements being universal, which in the Greek is literally translated as according to the whole and particular or according to the part. When the subject of a statement is universal, it can be taken as a whole, that is the subject, and we indicate that by putting in front of the statement the words all, or every, or even the word no. Thus, when I say every man is mortal, or when I say no man is mortal, they both take the subject man according to the whole, universally. We can also take that same subject particularly. That is, we can predicate something of the subject because of some particular which falls underneath that subject, as a particular falls under a universal. 
and we indicate that by the word some, many, or a few. For example, if I say some man is tan, that's not true because man as a whole is tan, since that's false. But it is true in virtue of the fact that some particular individuals, who in fact are men, also happen to be tan. Similarly, we can say that some animals are rational, not because rational belongs to the whole nature of animal, but because part of the genus, the species man, has rationality. And that's what makes statements universal and particular. So Aristotle gives us two ways of dividing statements. Notice that the two ways don't come under each other. It's not that we're dividing affirmative statements just into universal and particular. We're dividing all statements into the universal and particular. And so what Aristotle does is he combines the two divisions to come up with four different kinds of statements. Those four different kinds of statements I've outlined in chart number two. Across the top is the distinction of statements according to what we call the quality of the statement, whether the statement is an affirmation or a denial. Along the left side is a division of the statement according to the quantity of the statement, whether it's universal or particular. For example, we have, first of all, the universal affirmation. Every B is A. An example of that would be every man is an animal. That is in the top left-hand corner, and it is symbolized by the letter A. Secondly, we have the universal denial. That's in the top right-hand corner. An example is no man is mortal, or to put it in more general terms, no B is A and it is symbolized by the letter E. Thirdly, we have the particular statement, the particular affirmation, an example being some man is mortal, and it's put more generally as some B is A, and it's symbolized by the letter I. And finally, we have a particular denial, some man is not mortal. It is generalized by saying some B is not A, and it is symbolized by the letter O, and it is in the bottom right-hand corner. So those are the four basic kinds of statements that are attained by combining the two distinctions, the distinction between the quality of the statement and the distinctions between the quantities of the statements. One thing to note about this division the two particular statements do not imply each other. The statement, some men are mortal, points only to a group of men and says that they are mortal. We cannot infer from the fact that someone says some men are mortal to saying some men are not mortal. Some men are mortal only tells us about part of the species man. It leaves the other part totally undetermined. The rest might be mortal also, or they might not be mortal. Thus, it could be true that some men are mortal and that others are not, or even that all men are mortal, but we only know that some are. The particular statement, both the affirmative and the negative, speaks only about part of the whole subject and implies nothing at all about the rest of the subject.
Now, these are the four basic, though they're not the only kinds of statements. There are other kinds that when you get into the more advanced parts of logic, you would study. These are the ones that we are going to need. Now, we're going to skip those more advanced discussions and focus on the relations between those four basic kinds of statement. Remember, once again, statements are defined as complex expressions which signify the true and the false. The relations of opposition between statements, then, are specified by how statements are related looking to their truth and falsity. I think what I'm saying will become clearer when we look at some examples of these relations. Now, Aristotle gives two names for these relations, and we're going to cover the first one first. He says, if a man makes a positive and a negative statement of a universal character with regard to a universal subject, these two statements are contraries. For example, every man is white, no man is white. Now, when I have two statements which have the same noun and the same verb, but one is a universal affirmation and the other is a universal denial, these are called contrary statements. Now, we may need to keep in mind that we're using the term contrary again, but in a different sense than the sense in which we used it before. There we were talking about simple things. Here we're talking about statements. So white and black are contraries that we talked about in the categories. But the statements, every man is white and no man is white, are the contrary statements. But there's a reason that they're called contrary statements. They have a likeness to the simple contraries. Remember, the simple contraries excluded each other. A thing could not be black and white at the same time. It was either one or the other. But it could be neither one. That is, a thing might be neither black nor white. So, a thing cannot be both black and white, but it could be neither black nor white. That's true about many of the simple contraries. Contrary statements are like that, but they're like that with respect to truth and falsity. The truth of one of the contrary statements excludes the truth of the other. Yet there is a middle ground, just like in simple contraries, in which neither statement is true. For example, I gave the statements, every man is white, no man is white. They're contrary statements. In fact, neither of them is true. What's in fact true is that some men are white, some men are not white. If it were true that every man was white, then it would have to be false that no man is white. But, as we see, there is a possibility for a middle ground. So contrary statements are called contrary because they have that likeness to simple terms that are contraries. In chart number three, I give a figure which summarizes the relations we're talking about. And that figure is called the square of opposition. And so as before, the universal affirmation, every B is A, is in the top left-hand corner, and the universal denial, no B is A, is in the top right-hand corner. And across the top of the figure, I have said that those are related as contraries.
there's another relation that I talk about in the figure, and that's the relation between contradictories. That's symbolized by the diagonal lines in the same figure in chart number three. So the next thing we need to talk about are contradictories. Aristotle defines them as follows. An affirmation is opposed to denial in the sense which I denote by the term contradictory when, though the subject remains the same, the affirmation is of a universal character and the denial is not. He gives an example. The affirmation, every man is white, is the contradictory of the denial, some man is not white. Again, the statement, no man is white, is the contradictory of the statement, some men are white. So we can say this, two statements are contradictory when they have the same noun and the same verb, but they differ both in quantity and in quality. If the first is universal, the second is particular. If the first is particular, the second is universal. If the first is an affirmation, the second is a denial. If the first is a denial, the second is the affirmation. And so they naturally are relations between terms that are diagonally related on our figure. So the universal affirmation is contradicted by the particular denial. The particular affirmation is contradicted by the universal denial and vice versa. A is contradicted by O, I by E. So we can sum up the contradictories in this way. Two statements are contradictories when, having the same noun and verb, they differ both in quantity and quality. Now, what's true about contradictory statements? Well, it's something that's very similar to what's true about contradictory terms. Remember we said contradictory terms, one or the other belong to whatever subject you talked about. So for example, everything in the universe is either sitting or not sitting. Everything in the universe is either white or not white. Everything in the universe is either seeing or not seeing. Something parallel is true with contradictory statements. For every pair of contradictory statements, one is true, the other is false. Now, of course, we might not know which one is true, which one is false, but we do know that if we have two contradictories, one is true and the other is false. There is no middle ground. So for example, if it is true that some men are white, it is false that no men are white. And if it's true that every man is white, it is false that some men are not white. And vice versa. So contrary statements are statements which are both universal, they have the same noun and verb, but one is an affirmation and the other is denial. They cannot both be true, but it is possible for both to be false. Contradictory statements, same noun and same verb. They differ both in quantity and in quality. And it's always the case that either one or the other is true. There is no middle ground in which both are true or both false. That completes our discussion of the kinds of statements and the opposition between statements. Now, I just would like to clear up a possible objection. I want to talk about the necessity of logic for the second operation. Now, obviously, we do not need logic to teach us to make statements. 
We are making statements all the time whenever we express our opinions. Nor do we need logic to teach us to disagree with other people, to oppose the statements of other people. So someone might think that this part of logic is not really necessary. But though we naturally make statements, the statements we naturally make tend to be imperfect and imprecise. They don't fully convey the truths that we wish to affirm. For example, we might wish to affirm that every human soul is immortal, but our statement, the soul is immortal, does not necessarily convey that. It's open to two interpretations, every soul is immortal or just some souls are immortal. Logic teaches us how to make our statements precise so they convey exactly the truth we wish to convey. Moreover, when we oppose what we consider the falsity in the opinions of others, if we rely on how we do it naturally, we often do it badly because we don't understand how statements should be opposed to each other. So for example, when someone says no soul is immortal, we don't necessarily need to oppose them by saying every soul is immortal. It's enough to contradict them by saying some souls are immortal. So logic of the second operation helps us to craft precise statements and to precisely and effectively oppose the statements of others. It enables us to precisely affirm the true and deny the false. Now in this lecture we've covered the fundamental kinds of statements and the relations of opposition that occur between them. We've distinguished four kinds according to quantity and quality, the universal affirmation and denial, the particular affirmation and denial. We've seen that the two universals are contrary to each other, but that statements which differ both in quantity and quality are contradictory. We've even looked at why we need to discuss these topics at all, what the logic of the second operation is. So, for the rest of the course, we're going to be dealing with the logic of the third operation of the intellect. Not composing and dividing, but discursive reasoning. And in our next lecture, we're going to be considering the fundamental tool of the third part of the logic, the syllogism. We will look at the definition and parts of the syllogism. We're going to look at the principles of the syllogism. But first, we're going to go over and outline the whole of the third part of logic in detail. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.